here, so I can project my voice if I need to. So just let me know if I'm too quiet, and I'll I'll bounce it off the back wall. All right. Well, I think we'll go ahead and get started. If anyone else comes and joins in, then they can just play catch up. Uh, this is a class on how to cultivate a culture of love. And before we get started, I just want to pray real quick, and then we'll get into the bulk of this. Father God, thank you so much for the chance to be here with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I know that I know that this can be a challenging topic, um, as benign as it might seem on the surface. I know that it can push a lot of buttons and it can stir up a lot of things. So, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit is here with us today, that it smooths over the rough edges, that it um, massages our hearts to hear what you want to speak today. And Father, as I always pray, I pray that in the delivery of this, that anything that's too much of Drew and not enough of you will just be burned from our memories, and that all that's left from this time is what you want to deposit in our hearts, our souls, our minds. So, Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your mercy, for your grace. We thank you that you taught us how to love by you loving us first. So, Father, may that come through today. May we be able to apply this broadly. We thank you. We bless you. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Okay, well, I'm going to start by taking this cup out of my mouth because it's bugging me. No one should. <laughs> all right, I will. That's not awkward at all. <laughs> mm, no, no, no. Challenge accepted, friend. All right. I'm going to start with a uh, passage out of the book The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote this haunting passage, and I think it's really convincing and very haunting as I read it and I've pondered it over the years. And I think it applies really powerfully to what we're going to talk about today. And he says this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in this light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no, no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours like the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom with we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. When we think about that quote and we think about the reality of it, essentially what it's saying is that we are helping people to one destiny or another, to either a destiny of eternity with Jesus in glory or to a destiny of separation from God and hell. Those are the options. And primarily, the central concern of the gospel is, and the central concern even of this passage is that we by the way we interact with and treat and relate to people, 
are helping them to one destination or another. And I really want us to sit and think about that because we get so often distracted in our day and age with so many things that, that have no eternal value. And I love that C.S. Lewis had the, had the wherewithal to even say, cultures, nations, arts, civilizations, these things, they will pass. Politics will pass. But people are immortal. People are eternal. Every person that we interact with, we are helping to an eternal destination. It's in that light that we are going to address this and talk about how to cultivate a culture of love because, like I said before, the central concern of the gospel is relationship. You know, this morning, Brian mentioned this passage, and I'll read it to you now. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And Jesus said, the second commandment is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. He also says that all the law and the prophets can be wrapped up in that. And that's from Mark 12, verses 30 and 31. In John 13, 34 through 35, he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my, my disciples, if you love one another. These commandments are undeniably relational. In fact, if we think about the nature of God and how he calls us to live, God is a relational God. And it makes sense to me, and should the deeper we delve into the Bible, the deeper we delve into theology, the more we try to wrestle with what our responses, our actions, our posture in this world and with each other should be, the greater we see that relationship is at the central concern of that. You can't minister to that which you don't understand and have no empathy for. You have no authority to that which you do not love. I want us to think about that. Do you, do you know what empathy is? Do we understand the concept of empathy? If you don't know what it is, I encourage you to, to read the, the writings of contemporary author and researcher Brene Brown. She writes incredibly about empathy, about vulnerability, about courage, about all these things. She's kind of a believer, I think, but although her theology, I wouldn't agree with every bit that she believes, but she is brilliant, and all truth is God's truth, so let's take what we can, joke meets, spit out the bones. But if you need to understand empathy, I can sum it up basically in years of ministry like this, empathy is simply the ability to understand where the other person is coming from. To have a knowledge or an understanding of the perspective, the position, the struggle, the trial, the, the hardship, the victories, whatever it is, to understand the other person. You can't minister to anything that you don't have empathy for. Likewise, we don't really have the ability to love people that we don't understand. We might tolerate them, we might placate them, we might pacify them, but we truly do not love that which we don't understand, and we have no authority to speak to that which we're not demonstrating love to. Um, you with me so far? Yeah. Okay, I want you to put that kind of on the shelf for a minute, and I want to talk about a, a contrast between two concepts. Hostility versus in our culture, we've gotten so far away from responding in empathy to those that we don't agree with, or that we struggle with, 
that truly our culture is getting to this place where our default response, even for a lot of believers, and the only proof you need of this is just spend a day watching Facebook, like just read the comment sections on Facebook on a contentious mm -hmm. discussion, mm -hmm. and you can see that the default position for most people now is hostility. And hostility is a response we have that comes out of defensiveness, or it comes out of fear, or it comes out of anger, or it comes out of a place of offense, and it's a very carnal, fleshly reaction. But it's kind of the place that we're finding ourselves now, where a lot of us default to this place of, of hostility. When you contrast that with empathy, hostility gets a response from someone or, or sees a perspective or, or hears something from someone that seems to threaten our perspective or our position or our values, something like that, and hostility wants to immediately go into defense. Either defense or offense. You know, that's like a good defense is a good offense. You ever heard that before? My dad just taught me how to drive like that. Not defensive driving, offensive driving. Just kidding. It was a joke. We're going to joke and we're going to laugh. It's going to be okay. But hostility is this place where a lot of us are going because we've lost the art of understanding the other person. If you take this idea and you, you then look at it this way that the Bible calls us to love, calls us to relationship, calls us to understanding, calls us to grace, calls us to forgiveness. If we're not doing that and we start going into this place, this reaction of hostility, what we're cultivating is relationships of, of opposition and we're instead of cultivating friendships and connected relationships, we're cultivating opponents and enemies. That make sense so far? Good. Okay. Think on that for just a moment. I want to read you a quote from a book by an author named Peter Kraft. It's a book titled How to Win the Culture War. And this is his, his quote that I'm pulling out for you today. Satan's essential task is not just to block the finding, but to block the seeking. Eventually, seekers find. So it is a vastly more efficient expenditure of energy to attack the seeking. And what he's saying in this is that if Satan can distract people or put people off from seeking the truth or seeking the Lord or seeking community or seeking connection, if he can somehow prevent the seeking, He's done his job because eventually all seekers find. He doesn't have to block the finding. He has to just turn people off from looking. It's mm, good. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I want to read you this book. And I'm, I'm very random at the beginning, but I'm setting some concepts that I think will set up the rest of this conversation. There's an African proverb that says this. The child... Who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel the warmth of its fire. Another version of the proverb says, if the young are not initiated into the tribe, they will burn it down just to feel its warmth. See, we are relational beings. We are created relational in nature. We are created by God for relationship, not only with him but with each other, and relationship is the primary concern. You know that most of the wounds that people walk around with today are relational. We are wounded primarily in the context of relationship, either, either you know, passively or actively. We, we experience passive wound by neglect or by this passive rejection or by inconsideration or by a lack of empathy or lack of love. And we experience truly active wounds by abuse, by, 
by attack, by, by any number of things that are intentionally and actively done to separate. And what this creates in, in, our, in our culture, and we see it more now than I think ever before, is we see the reactions of these relational wounds playing out with, within our culture, pulling the cultural divide. We see it pulling the church apart. We see it in this reality that we now have called cancel culture. Have you guys ever heard of that? Oh, yeah. Right? And it's all in this reactionary, relational place of woundedness. It's in this place of reaction to pain. Do you know that God has designed us to react like this in, in one way or another? In our brains, we have something called the limbic system. And the limbic system is like the brain stem. It's the lower part of the brain. Some people call it the reptilian brain. I do not. We are not from reptiles. But it's that more primal place. And the, the limbic system has three primary functions. Survive, avoid pain, seek pleasure. Those are the primary functions of the limbic system. The survive mechanism of the limbic system, it's like, have you ever gone out to the cold and started shivering? So that's your limbic system saying, your body is dropping in temperature, you need to regulate homeostasis temperature, so it's gonna make your body shake to get your body temperature back up. The limbic system, thank you, limbic system. You ever sat too long, like the speaker just won't shut up, and you've been sitting in one position for too long, and then your leg falls asleep, and then you shift your weight from one butt cheek to the other just because you know, like, this is gonna get bad, or, you know, you know any number of those involuntary processes where your body is saying, okay, something you're doing right now is threatening your survival, so we need to shift and move and, and all that. That's the limbic system. The limbic system, in that survival mode, is bent and designed by God to respond to threat, to a lack of safety. And what it says is, if I experience a lack of safety or threat, I'm gonna to respond to make myself safe, to survive. The limbic system does not care if it's a physical threat or an emotional threat or a spiritual threat. It perceives threat and it responds. The limbic system has no moral reasoning. That's your prefrontal cortex. That's up here. This is where your decision-making like rests. When you feel threatened, or when you feel triggered, as some people call it, you ever hear fight, flight, freeze, fawn? You ever hear those? Limbic system, limbic responses. But if you feel threatened, it does not make logical conclusions about how to address the threat, it just tries to fix it. Mm. Essentially, what we're seeing in our culture, people is responding in hostility. It's a response to a lack of safety and a response to threat. Emotional, physical, spiritual threat. I'll put it this way. If I come up to one of you and I stomp on your foot, what are you gonna feel? Pain. Pain. What is, yes, you're gonna feel pain. What is, the, what is the next thing you're gonna feel? Anger. Your fist against my face. Okay. In a split second sometimes, that pain will barely register before your defensive response is gonna go, you know? Anyone ever experienced, like you go into a new place or a church for the first time, a new environment, what do you do? How do you process being in a new environment? Like, I know for me, even this morning when I came here, even though I'm the guest speaker and I'm like, hi, I'm here to, you know, I've been invited, you know. <laughs> but still, for me, I walk into a place and I think, where am I comfortable? Who looks threatening? Who looks like they're going to take my life away from, like, sheer need? Who is looking friendly? Who, where do I feel safe? Where do I want to sit where I feel safe? 
So many of us have an autopilot response to this that's cultivated safety for in many different areas of our life. We have patterns and routines that we don't question, and most of them are designed to keep us feeling safe and comfortable because our limbic response is trying to do that. Now the avoid pain response of the limbic system, again, it doesn't differentiate between physical pain or emotional pain or spiritual pain. It just knows pain. Our limbic system knows the pain of rejection. It knows the pain of feeling judged. It knows the pain of feeling singled out. It knows the pain of feeling inadequate. How many of you have ever been picked last for gym class? Raise your hand. Do you know that feeling that you have when, like, back in grade school, some of you think back then, like, okay, we're gonna pick teams, and then the flop sweat begins. <laughs> or pick any other thing that, like, a situation that might have put you in a position where you felt like your lack of acceptance might have been exposed, or your weaknesses might have been exposed. What is your initial feeling or response? You want to leave. You want to avoid the pain of exposure. Doesn't matter if it's physical, doesn't matter if it's emotional, doesn't matter if it's spiritual. The limbic system wants to avoid that pain. And the limbic system also wants to then go seek something as a pleasure reward. That's what it does. Now, I'll, I'll explain it this way. How many of you have ever, how many of you like chocolate? Raise your hand. This is, you know, very, okay, some of you did not raise your hand, so I can't imagine where you live and where you come from. But if you think of something that you like, how many of you like bacon? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. No. You did not ever have to convince yourself to have more bacon. Because your limbic system said, that's good, get more of that. And your limbic system will still say that even if your cardiologist says, lay off the bacon, you're like, no. Limbic system says no. Because it just wants that pleasure. The limbic system, again, has no moral reasoning, has no no, no cause and effect, has no consequence reasoning, it just wants what it wants, okay? So with that said, if our bodies have been designed to respond like this, and our moral reasoning shuts down when we feel threatened, let's just, again, push that into this context of God saying, love each other well. Love each other, love me first, love each other well, love your neighbor as you love yourself, and later on in the scriptures it says, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, bless those who hate you. If we think about what this commandment is actually trying to establish, it's trying to establish safety. Because when you love people well, when you feel loved by a person, do you feel any threat? Do you feel any triggering into a hostile response. No, when you feel loved, you feel safe. When you feel loved, you feel at peace. When we feel loved and we're not triggered, we have the ability to think. We have the ability to reason. We have the ability to make better choices about what we say, about what we do. We're not often to trigger land and trigger happy in our responses. Instead, we're able to pause, to breathe, to think, to reason, to make better choices. If you think back in your life, the moments where you make really bad choices, I would guarantee you that if you had an ability to stand back as an observer and ask yourself, what was going on in my heart and mind 
when I made that bad choice. Sometimes we make that bad choice because we feel the threat of rejection. That's what peer pressure is built around. If I don't make this choice, I'll be rejected, so I'm gonna make this choice. Well, the pain of rejection is too scary and shuts down our ability to reason right and wrong, and so we make the bad choice. Sometimes we make bad choices because we are starved for love and affection. Proverbs 27.7 says this, To him who is well fed, honey is not desirable, but to him who is starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. In modern language, I put it this way, bad love is better than no love at all. Now, to prove this point, I'm going to ask a crowd participation question. Thank you for that. My limit system loves coffee. Um, <laughs> to prove this point, let me ask this question. How many of you have ever eaten at McDonald's? Raise your hand. Okay, not everyone raise their hand. This is just really unfair. <laughs> it's not a condemning question, so I'm going to widen the net if the McNugget is not your deal. <laughs> if you have ever received a meal through the window of your car, raise your hand. <laughs> and you know bad love is better than no love at all. <laughs> because let me tell you this, when you are driving through that drive-thru, you are not thinking this is a healthy choice. You're not thinking this is the best choice. No, what are you thinking? thinking, I'm hungry. Yeah. If you're like me, and you've got three kids who once again won't eat the good meal you prepared them, you're right. thinking, I don't want this bite. McNugget bill it is. You know, yeah. you are avoiding something and taking an easy route to make a bad choice, not an advisable choice. Unfortunately, I've made a lot of those choices. But you know this isn't the best choice. We're responding, and bad love is better than no love at all. Yeah. Okay? Now, with all that laid down as kind of the, the, the groundwork, the introduction, if you will, to this conversation, let's talk about how we see people. I want to ask you a question. Now, my, my world of ministry, as I mentioned in the morning uh, at Sunday service, I've spent the last 16 years ministering to people who are walking out of the LGBT. What I didn't say this morning, which you can read all about in my book, is that I came out of that community. My life, my first relationship was with a man. I accepted Christ when I was four years old, been a Christian my entire life. That did not stop me from struggling with sin and brokenness. Anyone relate to that? Yep. Oh yeah. I have a lot of compassion for this community, but I'm gonna ask you this. When you look at that community, what is the first thing you see? Fear. Confused. Disobedience. Rejection. Racism. And brokenness. A lot of sadness. A lot of sadness. A lot of hurt. Running. Running. How do you feel about that community? I hate them. You hate them? I appreciate your honesty. Really thank you for that honesty. I'd like a little a lot more honesty in this room. Because I'm going to be honest with you. I've spent the last several years of my life talking to the church about homosexuality. And I can tell you, as much as we all see or can say we see the brokenness, let me ask you this. How do you feel about the gay agenda? How do you feel about religious freedom being threatened by? Right. Do you get what I'm saying here? Yes. Oh, yeah. Because as much as we all might, in the moment where we're not feeling threatened, be able to see the brokenness or the pain, Let's talk about a moment where we're feeling threatened. A moment where you're being called a bigot. Or a moment when you're being confronted with the reality you don't want to confront. 
like for a lot of parents who have a child who comes out as gay, or a pastor who has a transgender individual show up in their church and they don't know, are you here because you're actually seeking Jesus or because you're trying to bait us in the fight? See, we are in a cultural reality where we automatically are gonna get triggered no matter how comfortable or how progressive or how whatever it is, there's always going to be something that's going to try to trigger us into a response that is not love. And the reason why, and let's go back up a little bit. Another issue that the church faces, which we don't often admit to, but I'm going to tell you this right now, it is a reality, is self-righteousness. Because I'm going to tell you this, as a person who struggled with this and grew up in the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 start with a very chipper, wonderfully cheerful, hopeful passage that Paul says, Do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? So encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes down a list of sins that if we're honest with ourselves, every single person in this room would find themselves somewhere on that list. Yeah. Yeah. Except the fact that homosexual is on that <coughs> list, homosexual offender, and so often the church camps on that particular sin, stands in self-righteous judgment and rejection of those individuals, when the gay community and anyone who struggles with this knows any Christian can find themselves on that list and ask the question repeatedly, why is mine so bad and you're not harsh on your own? Which even that question can begin to trigger us and get us self-defensive and start feeling unsafe, correct? Yeah. And where does that put us? In a response of hostility, and in response of defensiveness, and not love. Feeling the weight of this conversation yet? Anybody? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Try being the one delivering it. <laughs> really super fun. I want to tell you a story. Back in about 2000, 2001, I was working as an intern at the ministry that I, that I later was on staff full time with in Portland, Oregon, called the Portland Fellowship. Now, the internship did not pay anything, so I had to make money somehow, so I did what every single 20 something does in Portland when they need a job. I worked at a coffee shop. It's a place where young people go to retire, it's Portland, Oregon. <laughs> yeah. And I worked at a Starbucks back when Starbucks was still cool. You guys have caribou coffee up here, and I, it's very different, but anyway. This was, this was back in the day when Starbucks was still not. Starbucks, too. Charbucks, do you call it Charbucks? First time I came to Minnesota, someone I said, is there a Starbucks? And no joke, this was back in 2002. We don't do Charbucks around here, we do caribou coffee. I was like, well, what the crap is caribou coffee? And then someone got me a mint condition and I went into Diabetic Shop. It was so sweet. So I, anyway, I worked at Starbucks. I mean Starbucks <laughs> in downtown Portland, and I worked at this small little store which didn't even have any tables in it. It was literally a store nestled in between a bunch of office buildings, big enough just to come in and get your coffee and you go out. And I called it my little lesbian Starbucks because I was the only guy that worked there. Okay. And there were eight other employees, and of those eight women, one was not a lesbian. It was a lot of caffeine and lesbians first thing in the morning. <laughs> Not a chipper group of ladies back then. <laughs> so one of, my, one of my first days, it's a joke, by the way, I'm not making a judgment about all lesbians, but anyway, I loved these ladies, they were, I loved them. It was so 
much of a rewarding time for me to interact with them every day and to be able to just relate to them. See, because one of the things that caused me to be able to do that, even though they did not know my story or my testimony because that would have felt like a threat to them, I did not share that with them. But I had empathy for them because I could relate to how they got to where they were. And so that allowed me just to love them and to enjoy them. And about probably the third or fourth day that I was working there, the assistant manager came into the back room and I was filling out some paperwork. I don't even remember what I was filling out for, but something. And she walked back there and I, you ever have one of those moments where you can feel someone's eyes on you, but you haven't seen it yet? Uh-huh. And you're just like, uh-huh. you know, oh, you're looking at me. And she's just staring at me, just laser focus. And immediately I started to feel that threatening, like foreboding pregnant pause of like something's about to happen. And she looked at me and she said, so. And I said, so? She goes, so you're a Christian, huh? And I went, oh, no. <laughs> Busted. Oh, oh, crap. And I was like, I don't have a tattoo on my forehead. I don't know what's going on. So I just said, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. And she looked at me, dead eye, looked at me, no blinking, and said, do you think I'm going to hell because I'm gay? And I thought, welcome to Starbucks.
But do you, do you want to know why she asked that question? Because I'm going to be honest with you, she didn't ask that question because she wanted to, to know if I believed as a Christian if homosexual behavior was sin. She knew that I believed that. She didn't even care about Christian theology. But the reality was, why did she think that I would believe that she was going to hell because she was gay? Everyone else said that to her. Now, here's where empathy comes in. And you can't get to empathy. I mean, you have to get to empathy to understand the person and then to be able to love and minister to them. From her worldview, her sexual orientation is something that is unchangeable, unchosen, will never change, not her fault, not her decision. Right. Biologically, genetically predisposed. Right. Yeah. So what she's actually asking me is, do you believe in a God who would send me to hell for something I have no choice in? Mm -hmm. yeah. You see that? Yeah. What kind of God is that? That's her question. That's the question of her heart. Do you, Drew, believe in a God that will send me to hell for something I have no choice in? She doesn't care if Jesus is the Messiah. That isn't her, that's not her issue. She doesn't care if I believe that homosexuality is a sin. That's not her issue. Her issue is what do I believe about the character of God? And do I believe in a God that will send her to hell with no choice given to her? Do you see, do you see that? Do you see the difference? But as Christians, we might get into that position and without empathy, we're gonna respond in a way that is only going to reinforce that sense of injustice. We're not going to see her heart behind the question. We might get defensive, and we can either do one of two things when we get defensive because we can't really think through our choices. We're either going to defend, we're going to flee, or we're going to fight. Or we're going to fawn. These are the responses. You know what fleeing looks like? I gotta go! <laughs> you know what fawning looks like? Oh, you're fine, you're good, everything's good, God loves you, you're fine. Do you know what fighting looks like? How dare you challenge my beliefs? You're being hostile. You know, I mean, do you see the difference? But when we have understanding to the other person, which we can only gain through relationship and empathy, when we have understanding to the other person's heart, their motivations, their pain, their struggle, then we can speak to the thing that's actually hurting. Then we can actually speak to the wound. We can speak to what's going on. We can understand their perspective. We don't have to agree with their perspective. For the record, for the record, I do not believe that sexual orientation is something that is unchangeable. Clearly, I'm standing right here. I've been married now for 17, almost 17 years. I have three beautiful daughters. Everything that I once thought impossible has become possible and desirable. It's amazing. God transforms us. Yes, but her perspective in that is what I really need to understand and understand the implications of what that means for her. I don't have to agree with her perspective, I have to understand it. And I can't relate to her if I don't understand her. And I won't have authority to speak if I not only don't understand her, but also love her. So she left, I passed out, time went on. <laughs> Several weeks later, because this had then proved to her that I'm not a, a bigoted jerk, 
And I'm not someone who believes in a God who just wants to condemn her, but rather a God that gives her a choice in the matter. So she can choose to accept Jesus or reject him. That's her choice. Now the character of God that I believe in is someone that wants to interact with her and give her a choice to think through her, her eternal destination. So I'm now safer. Does that make sense? And because I'm safer, several weeks later, she brought up another question. We were making mochas during the morning rush. Minding my own business. And out of nowhere, she goes, Drew, why do Christians hate gay people? And I said, oh, they don't hate gay people. And she goes, a liar. <laughs> and it didn't feel right coming out of my mouth because as someone who has experienced homophobia and rejection and hatred, in the church when people didn't know I was struggling with what I was struggling with, when the pastors that I grew up under said that AIDS was God's right judgment against the homosexual community, when, you know, people made snide comments, when they, like, I, I felt it, and I had seen the protesters of the gay pride parades, like, because our Starbucks was on the parade route, and I had seen the Christians that probably well-meaningly wanted to tell the truth, had held up signs like, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, which, by the way, just helps so much with the astral. It makes it all, oh, I didn't know. Thank you. All better. You know, does not actually help. Only feels condemning. And so she said, I've seen them. I've felt rejected. I've been spit on by people with these signs. She's like, I know they hate me. I know they hate me. Why do Christians hate me? Now, I can't argue with that experience, can you? And I know a lot of us would probably go there and try to defend or explain the experience. Instead, I just said, you know what, I'm so sorry that's been your experience. I don't know if those people actually believed in Jesus, but I can tell you they weren't acting like it. And I'm so sorry that that was your experience with believers and with, with people who represent Jesus. So I hope that I'm creating a different experience for each of you are, that's why I'm asking you. Because empathy and love and relationship. And I said, well, if you're really asking why there's tension between Christians and the gay community, I'd, I'd be happy to give you my perspective. Okay. She's willing to listen because I'm safe. I said, okay, here's the deal. Let me ask you this, you know, my friend. Have you ever seen the adulterous pride parade? She goes, what? And I said, okay, how about the glutton pride parade? And then I had to stop it. Well, we're in Portland, and Oktoberfest is coming up, so yes. But I said, maybe not a good analogy, but let me put it this way. No other thing that the Bible classifies as a sin do we as a Christian community see another group of people trying to take that thing on as their identity and then saying, celebrate it. And she went, wait, what? And I said, because I believe that the thing that you are doing is a sinful behavior that is separating you from God, but you believe it's part of your identity and want me to celebrate it, how can I celebrate something that I feel and believe is pushing you further away from the God who loves you? That's not an agreement I can make with you. And she went, oh. Oh. She goes, but that's who I am. I said, is it though? And she goes, well, yes. And I said, well, let me tell you who I see that you are. I see you as a woman created in the image of God. A woman who God loves and died to have a relationship with. 
I see a spunky, snarky, sarcastic, amazingly funny, powerful woman who has a heart huge for the broken and for, the, for those that are oppressed. I see you as someone who is fiercely loyal, and I really like you. Please tell me who you are, not who you sleep with. Don't be so small-minded. She did not like that part. But <laughs> she goes, well, but this is who I know to, and you know, I was like, I'm not arguing with your definition of who you are. I'm telling you how I see you. You have every right to define yourself in any way you choose. God gives you that right. But you don't get to tell me how to define you. I see you through the eyes of, I believe, how God sees you. And what you do and what you feel are not on the list of things that God uses to categorize who you are. I said, can you see how that might be hard for the Christian community to celebrate an identity that's based in behavior and feelings that we believe are broken and sinful? Now, you don't have to believe that, but can you see from my perspective? I guess I can see it from your perspective. And I thought, holy crap, I just won the greatest victory honor. I tried not to do my happy dance right there. <laughs> but what that represented was I've created a safe environment for her so that a difference of opinion isn't a threat. Do you know how huge that is? Especially in our culture today, a difference of opinion not being a threat? Lord, just once on Facebook, saying something that you agree with something that is controversial and see how many people unfriend you, or attack you, or comment about how you're horrible, or, and you don't even have to, you don't even have to pick a side, just pick anything just because. Someone will hate you for it. On this issue, which was so rooted in her sense of her own identity, which by the way, normally whenever you challenge someone's identity, it's gonna make them feel good. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna protect that at any cost, unless you've proven to be safe. And when you're safe, you can say things that are difficult, and they land in a soft place in our hearts because we're safe. Making sense so far? Yeah. See, strong words require strong relationship. We, as Christians, sometimes try to run off and say the hard thing without developing the strong relationship to sustain the hard work. But strong words require strong relationship. As time went on, a couple of months later, she came up again. We were in the middle of making frappuccinos at this point because it was summer. And by the way, frappuccinos are the bane of every Starbucks worker's existence, so don't order them just as a public service. <laughs> <laughs> and she said to me, she goes, Drew, so my, my girlfriend and I are reading some books, and we're starting to get a little concerned about our future. I'm like, that's right. And I said, what are you talking about? She goes, well, we're reading these books, and it says that we're going to go to hell. And like, I said, well, I've already told you this. I said, well, what are you talking about? She goes, I mean, we're reading these books and there's like a rapture coming. I said, what books are you reading? She goes, they're called Left Behind. My face is melting. My face is melting. And I, uh, um, yeah, I've heard of these. And she goes, and I'm thinking in my head, I've never read the Bible, but I'll work with what I've got. And she goes, so are we going to get left behind? I said, do you remember when we talked about Jesus being the only way to heaven? And she was, yeah. And I said, so what's your question? She goes, well, that's what I thought you'd say. And I said, but also don't watch the movies, because it's Kirk Cameron and it's not great. And uh, so she goes, well, my girlfriend and I, I think we need to start going to church. 
I was like, probably a good plan. She says, but we're going to go to a church that tells us that it's okay to be gay and that Jesus is fine with that. And I said, now you have a problem. She's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, the scripture doesn't say that. And if you go to a church that tells you things that the scripture doesn't say, they're lying to you or manipulating it to serve your own purpose. She goes, okay. And I said, if that's the case, how can you trust anything you say? Because if the Bible isn't, a, isn't an authoritative word on everything, how could it be on anything? And she looked at me, she took a deep breath, she goes, well, crap. <laughs> and then she started to cry. very real threat for her. She said, if we go to some church as a couple and they reject us, I don't know if I can handle that. Like that's, that's her heart, you guys. That's the fear of being rejected. It's one of the primal baseline threats that we as humanity experience that we were never built or designed to experience. It's why it hurts so much. I can't even imagine the pain of Adam and Eve in the garden when God said, get out. We were not designed to experience that rejection. We weren't designed to experience a lack of safety at all. In fact, I would argue theologically that the knowledge of good and evil is not some mystical thing, but rather the consequence we're still, still dealing with today is that God never meant us to experience rejection or pain or threat or insecurity. And our primal physical response to those things are so unnatural to us because God did not make us to experience that. We have adapted to that reality. Mm -hmm. But she said that crying, she said, I don't want to go somewhere where they're going to reject me. And I said, girl, you're in Portland, Oregon. You're not the first lesbian to walk into church. <laughs> she did not appreciate how lighthearted I was with that, but she eventually laughed. And I said, listen, I know a list of churches that will tell you the truth. They also will understand that people come to Jesus as they are. They will not reject you for showing up as your partner. They will tell you the truth and they will love you. Do you want a list of those churches? Yeah, I do. Okay, here's the list. And then a week later, she quit Starbucks and I never saw her again. Oh. I would, I know. I would love to tell you that this resulted in like yeah. she repented because she got married and had kids. I don't know the answer. We're not called, we are not responsible for the outcomes. We are called to love people. We are called to empathize with people and understand where they're coming from and create a culture that is safe and is loving and is truthful. You see, this is, the, this is the trick that we struggle with. Love without truth is not loving. And truth without love is not truthful. And in the Christian community, in our efforts to try to create a culture of love, we either sometimes err on that side of truth because truth is love. No, truth is truth. And love is love. Amen. But truth and love together create that environment of safety. And it creates that culture. Because if we're lying to people or we're admitting the truth or omitting the truth, that's not loving. But if we are just telling the truth without compassion or empathy or understanding or mercy, that's not God. That's not the gospel. That's not truth. Hmm. When we get that tension in between the two, I'm going to tell you this right now. It is not easy. It is high risk. It is vulnerable. It is difficult. And it is the way of Jesus. 
Cultivating a culture of love demands that we act like, speak like, engage like, and risk like Jesus did. I'm going to tell you another story. This one is decidedly more painful. But in my years of working in Portland at this ministry, Portland Fellowship, we had a live-in program where, where we had just this discipleship program, live-in program that was about a year long. And we had about six different people that would live in the house that we owned at this ministry at a time. And, and I ran this program. And it wasn't like, you know, straight camp or any crap like that. It was literally like we're just people that are trying to follow Jesus and they all happen to deal with this and we want to live in community and do this as a community. And in that, there is inherent risks because you put a bunch of guys together that all struggle with same-sex attraction in a very vulnerable, connected community, people are going to make mistakes. And in this particular instance, there was a young man that was in, two young men that were in this program and they were not acting very healthy and they engaged in a sexual fall together, which was just the risk. And in my course of like leading this and trying to work my way through this, it was clear that one person was kind of the perpetrator and they were the seducer in the situation and the other guy was just weak and vulnerable and it, that's just how it went. And so when it came time to bring this to light in the community and deal with it, they had to confess before the community. It wasn't about shaming them, it was just about being honest because the word of God says confess your sins to one another and you're healed. You can confess to God all we want and we're forgiven. Well, healing comes when we're honest with our there was no shame in it, there was just honesty and accountability. And because this one guy was more the perpetrator, he was more, he was just acting out of severe brokenness, it became clear that it wasn't safe for him to live in the house at the time because he might do it again. And this kid grew up in a missionary home. This kid had abuse in his background. He had neglect in his background. He, I know why he made this choice. Because bad love is better than no love at all. So the starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. I saw and understood and empathized with his bad choice. But he couldn't live in the house. So what do I do? He was an international kid. He came from Canada. That's international. <laughs> Enough. And so I called my wife. And I said, hey, hon. So-and-so uh, made this choice. He can't be in the house, in the fiat house, right now. I didn't even finish my sentence. She's like, hey, make it up the bed. Make it up the guest room. Bring him over. I said, okay. So I loaded this kid up. And kid, 21-year-old kid. I'm now 43. Anyone under 30 is a kid now. That's right. So <laughs> brought him to our home. My wife, Suzanne, met him at the door, gave him a big hug. Why don't you go sit down on the couch? He's in shell shock because he's feeling shame. He's feeling guilt. He's feeling broken. He's feeling all exposed. All these things. It's a very critical moment. He went and sat on the couch. She brought him a fuzzy blanket. We have plenty of them. We like cozy blankets. She said, do you want some warm tea or something? He was kind of like, okay. Brought him a cup of tea. I sit down in my chair. She sits down in hers. We turn on Netflix, turn on a funny show, and just start watching TV. And he's sitting there. We're watching the show, it's 20 minutes in, and he has a full-on come apart. I don't understand what's going on here. Okay, what do you mean? I don't understand what's going on here. We have tea and a blanket, a TV show, what's not to understand? We're hanging out, like it's cozy time. We're in our comfies, you know? I was like, 
go do, go do family time. And then he starts weeping. And he says, how is this punishment? To which my wife looked at him, my wife said, and she said, buddy, it's not. It's love. And I looked at him and I said, we're not punishing you. We're caring for you. You made a bad choice. You made it out of your own pain and brokenness. We understand it. We've done it before ourselves. You don't need to be beaten into submission. You need love and to help. Sure. He did not understand that. He wept for a little while. Finally, he got it about a week later. And we began to minister to the broken places that led him to the wrong choices in his life. He had no context for what it was like to, instead of being punished for mistakes, loved through them. See, it's not our job to convince people how wrong or bad they are. It's not our job to convict anybody of any sin, actually. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And the Holy Spirit is much better at it, much, much gentler at it, and leaves people in a much greater position to receive mercy, grace, correction, discipleship, all of it. So we have the opportunity to love him into hell. And it takes a risk, it takes a toll when you decide to do that. And in all honesty, when he left that program, he went right back to his family of origin, and it did not go well. And he did not do well. And even though we loved him well and we loved him consistently, he now is kind of an enemy to us. It's really heartbreaking. But cultivating a culture of love takes the risk and counts it as worth it. Because for as many people that have gone back and then maybe make accusations or make judgments on us, there have been just as many who the love that we offer through cultivating love and cultivating a culture of love have been healed by it because all majority of our wounds are relational in nature and they only heal in relationship. We're healed in relationship, which is why God calls us to love each other. Why he says that people will know we are Christian by our love, not by our, our righteous judgment. Not by our moral rightness. By our love. Is this making sense so far? Yeah. If I could leave you, we have like two minutes left of this time official time, and then I'll open it up for any question and answer. We all can hang out as long as you want and ask questions and we can interact with this. But if I could leave you with this, cultivating a culture of love is one of the more costly things that we as believers can do. Because love costs us. It's, it's vulnerable. It's risky. It puts ourselves out there. It seeks to understand the other person first. It's patient. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians. It's patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy or boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Cultivating that type of culture, that culture of love, puts us at risk because the people that we love have no obligation to treat us in the same way back. Just like, 
Jesus, when he came, was crucified by the very people he came to save. Jesus, when he came, was rejected by one of his 12 disciples. Jesus, when he came, was denied three times by Peter, who he then built his church on. Love and cultivating that culture takes risks of rejection, of judgment, of misunderstanding, of pain, and we must rest secure in the love God gave us so that we don't react from that place of defensiveness, hostility, any of it. Sense so far. I want to leave us with just one more scripture and push this just a little bit more to the biblical conclusion. When we look at people, when we look at the gay community, when we look at people, I mean, depending on what political side of the aisle you stand on, when you look at the other end of the aisle, and I can't even assume, I don't assume anymore in Christian churches that anyone or anywhere on any side of any aisle because we're all actually in a giant pit. <laughs> when we look at people that represent something that we don't agree with or we don't believe in or that are hostile towards us, what do we see first? Can I challenge you to pray to have the eyes of Jesus to see people as he sees them? As men and women created in the image of God whom he died to save, whom he loves, and he is pursuant of to redeem. And although people do act hostily toward us, and they will, if we view them as an enemy, we're going to view them with, within that hostility. We're going to be guarded. We're going to focus on the differences. We're going to see through the lens of their sin. We're going to reinforce that isolation and marginalization. We're just going to create the culture wars all over again. But if we instead will look at them from this biblical perspective and take this instruction from 2 Timothy, I think it would do us all a little bit of good. It says this, 2 Timothy 2, 23-26, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Now right there, most of us should quit Facebook. <laughs> because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to the knowledge of truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. This one little shift for any hostile person who is just getting at you, can I challenge you to, instead of looking at them as an enemy or an opponent, can I challenge you to look at them as a prisoner of war? Because we pursue a prisoner of war very differently you know, we have one enemy. Yeah. One enemy. It doesn't matter how evil you think or how vile or anti-Christ you think someone is on whatever end of what spectrum. They are taken captive to do the will of the enemy. They are in deception. And it is that we need to act kindly and respectfully and lovingly hoping to teach so that maybe God will grant them repentance and maybe they'll escape the trap of the enemy because they have been taken captive to do his will. They are prisoners of a holy war. We lay down our lives and we launch rescue efforts for prisoners of war. Right? If we can shift our focus just a little bit, we can make a world of difference.
Amen? Amen. All right. Official teaching over. <laughs> and questions. Any questions? Here's your chance. Fire away. First question, there's a free copy of in the book. <laughs> Yay! Free copy of the book. There you go. My, my level of sophistication might have been a little bit more than it was back then. Okay, I guess my question more is like um, on her end of things, I feel like because all of that is so heightened, yeah. or so much more, or so much louder, or I mean, and I right. don't know if it's just social media stuff, or if it's really right. reality. I think it's a combination of both. Like we, we get inflamed more and more through social media and through the things that we're letting in, which is what I've appreciated so much about um, Brian this morning when he was talking in the first service, I think it was about like not even letting the like you know, Smith Wigglesworth wouldn't even let the newspaper in his home. I'm like, let's all cancel Facebook just for a hot minute. But I think what it would have required is more investment, more earning the right to speak. But the principle stands is that when we want to give strong words to someone, we have to have strong relationship. And back then, if you look at it like I always love true for the body, true for the soul. Like God created our physical bodies to illustrate the spiritual and relational truths all around us, so we have a tangible example. And one thing that I always picture when I think about like people's responses to me is like histamine levels and allergies. So like back then, maybe the allergy season of the culture wasn't so high. Now it would be like our eyes are swollen and we've got snot coming out of us all the time. And it would just take more more uh, ministry to that histamine level of offense to drop it down to the point where that word might be able to sustain. So it might have taken more time. I might have, might have uh, just started, you know, in this culture now, I might have just started with saying, no, I don't think that you're going to help because you're gay. But if you'd like to have a conversation about theology and what I believe sends someone to hell, I'd love to have that conversation with you rather than saying, oh, you're going to hell for a lot of reasons, you know. <laughs> Today it would take a little bit more finesse, but the relational investment was there, and I would I, I have this these types of relationships now, where I know the relational investment that it takes to have these hard conversations. Since you have the book, you're going to read about my identical twin brother, who is gay identified and married to a man and professing faith in Christ at the same time. Can you imagine the conversations we have nowadays mm -hmm. and the relational equity? that it takes to have very difficult conversations. We put in a lot of relationship in order to have difficult conversations. And even then, it doesn't go very well sometimes, and we have to slather it with grace, and slather it with mercy when he's calling me a Nazi. And I'm like, really? Really? I'm a Nazi? You know me. And, well, maybe not a Nazi, but you're this, this, and that. Really? 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 You know, we have to wrestle through some of those things. But what it takes for us now is to be unoffendable. I can't be offendable. Like, I have people attacking me all the time. I had a congressman call me, um, what did he call me? Maybe I've forgotten it on purpose. It was bad. I was in Washington, D.C. last year, going to senators' offices and congressmen's offices, trying to oppose a couple bills that were with a group of us, a couple of bills that were in play. 
And one of these staffers just was the most vile person I think I've ever met. And we have to be unoffendable to just be like, oh, okay, sorry that you feel that way. And not take on what is their pain-filled responses. And so, yeah, it might be a little bit more time and more finesse, but I would still have the same conversation just over time. So maybe that's it. Where are you working now? Are you still in the same place? Are you doing? No, I'm I'm a pastor. In Southern Oregon, that's my part-time job, which there is no such thing as a pastoral part-time job. I know that's right. Glory to God. My main ministry is traveling across the country, speaking to churches and denominations on this issue. Yeah, which means that I'm constantly having conversations. So, yeah. Yes, sir. It's one thing for individuals to say, "I think I can change." I'm talking about as Christians wanting to. But it's, it's something different to say a church needs to change. Because sure. church is made up of all kinds of people yeah. who have all kinds of different positions and they're in all different places. What do you recommend for churches that, that realize they're not really where they need to be in this area? Well, I think that, again, like starting these conversations, having the visibility and that openness of these conversations is a starting point. Because let's just face the fact that the church has not been great about talking about sexuality, period. I mean, let's just be honest about that. Like, as a person who goes to talk about this kind of sexuality stuff, I also go and I have to speak about sexuality in general because the second someone says sex in church, everyone's like, you know, it's, it's terrifying. It's like trying to turn the Titanic. It's just a big ship that's going to hit an iceberg. So having the conversations and making it okay to have these conversations and and encouraging the church just to say, yeah, there, we've had moments of hypocrisy. We have. We've had moments where we have not done a good job. And that isn't to our shame. It's just so that we can address it and repent. You're not coming back next week. You know, I'm not coming back here next week, but one of my jobs when I, when I come and I speak is I speak to the staff. I set a, a precedent for teens. And any team that is going to start this conversation is ready to take this conversation forward. And so we need to continue to have this conversation. We need to continue to wrestle with it. It's another reason why I have a blog and I have a podcast and I have my book and I'm writing a second book. And then like, there's other organizations I'm a part of as well that are all a bunch of the people doing these types of things and from different perspectives. Um, for example, I have a couple friends that, if you remember the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando a couple years ago, yeah. okay, where 50 homosexual individuals were gunned down. Well, my two friends were actually shot in that nightclub and came to know Jesus and repent and give their lives to Jesus on the floor of that nightclub bleeding. Now they're two evangelists that have given their lives completely to Jesus, have left the homosexual identity and are sharing their testimonies. There are so many testimonies. There are so many people sharing a similar story from different theological perspectives, but they're sharing it. And one of the things that we as the church have to do is we have to begin to let back into the fold and out of the periphery of the church, the redheaded stepchild of the church, which is like the ex-gay movement. I've been in this field for 20 years, and I can tell you that in the first 16, 17 years of being in that, very few churches want to hear a testimony like ours. Unless it's like for a political action, which is why we are in the situation we are now. Because testimonies were weaponized to try to keep rights away from other people that we don't agree with. 
we have to stop having the polarizing conversations and start having the smart conversations. Like I'll say something a little controversial here. Just because why not? I get to leave tomorrow. There we go. So do you remember a couple years back when the church has been in a big tizzy about gay marriage? Yeah. Uh-huh. Why do we care about that? Yeah. Why the crap do we care if the government defines marriage in a particular way? Okay, my brother has adopted a child, and that child was 900 days in foster care before he and his partner adopted him, and he has a better life with them than he did in the foster care system. Okay, and I also understand and see firsthand, because I'm in their lives, the deficits that kids has by not having a mom present, but you know what? My wife gets to be present for him. And so we might see and look at the, the consequences and the problems that come from that decision, but that's culture, and it's unsaved. We as the church get to step into places and be like, if we have relationship, and step into the gaps, and then to minister to the brokenness right there. Now my brother and his partner may not repent, but you know what, their son gets to see a healthy mom and a dad. Maybe it's not his, but you know what? I didn't have gay parents, but I had a crap circus for parents that did not model healthiness for me. And I'll tell you this, my brother and his partner do a better job than my heterosexual parents did. So that's one of those things, like we can't throw everything into one category or another because that same thing, and I'm not saying this to like push back on you or thinking this like we have to challenge our thinking. The same thing happens in our church where we go, well, homosexuality bad, heterosexuality good. That's not what the word of God says. Actually, the word of God does not say that there is anything as homosexual or heterosexual. It assumes that all people are gonna struggle with some sort of sexual brokenness, but it doesn't classify it like it says what is right sexually and what is wrong sexually. But it also says more than just penis and vagina make good. Because there's a whole lot of heterosexual marriages that are way unhealthy. And if my goal was just be straight, the models of what straight looked like in my community were broken, distorted, misogynistic, and awful. The process I went through to submit my sexuality to Jesus and let the chips fall where they may have actually made me a much healthier husband father, and I have people in my world, in the church that I serve, that are heterosexual, who go, how do you have your life together like this? Because heterosexual and homosexual is not the point. Holy is the point. That make sense? Okay. Okay? You're like, I'm not convinced, Drew, but I'm hearing you out. <laughs> so, yeah. So let me... Because I'm thinking that you're saying that we should even get involved in that? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is... When we are trying to legislate morality that didn't go well for the Pharisees, it's not going to go well for us. So what I say is, we, we do be involved. I'm involved politically. I go speak to legislative bodies. I you know, did this in Sacramento and Boston and Washington, D.C. and, and Salem, Oregon and you know, Olympia, Washington. I'm involved, but I choose what I get involved with. So I didn't get involved in the, like, let's outlaw gay marriage. I got involved in the let's outlaw discipleship and ministry resources for people who want to leave the homosexual lifestyle. When it comes to religious freedom and choice of therapy or choice of discipleship or outlawing my book that in the state of California, if the law passed that we thought would have made that business broad, I could get sued by the state of California for publishing my testimony. I fight that. When it comes to marriage, you know what I fight for? I fight the church to recover what holy matrimony means. I fight for the church to have a theology of sexuality that's more potent than don't. 
Here, here's the reality. I speak to denominations, I speak to churches, I speak to Bible colleges and seminaries all the time. Do you know how many hours of training pastors receive on human sexuality and the theology of sexuality in a six-year degree, a master's degree level? Zero. Do you know how many at a doctoral level? Do you know what is one of the number one problems pastors are facing in their congregations? Sexual and relational brokenness. And they have no training. Because the, the, the conversations we've had in the church are dull, or bad, or dirty, until you're married, then it's fine. Do you know how many couples I've counseled that were virgins getting married, walked into their wedding night, had sex, and then felt completely guilty? They did nothing wrong. They were experiencing a gift that God gave them for their mutual pleasure, to build intimacy in their relationship and they felt dirty and defiled and the reason why is instead of having a theology of what we believe in we as a church have been telling everyone what we are against and did you know that pursuit is actually way stronger than resistance or they're not even teaching or they're not even teaching sex before right like they're just like leaving it all out right Because they're afraid to touch it, they feel unequipped to address it, and they don't know what to say other than don't because that's all they've been taught. And they see how that has not actually done a good job. And actually, repression is dangerous. Behavioralism and repression, it just it sets people up to fail because they're not dealing with their hearts and they don't know what to pursue. And so it's like, but the world is telling everyone all the time what to pursue. So what argument's gonna win? That makes sense? So I fight, I fight like hell, honestly, for a biblical understanding of what marriage is to the church. Because that's the people I'm called to. That's the people that I want to help recover a vision of this so that we can know what we're fighting for, not just what we're fighting against. And on a civil level, like, they've had civil, they've had civil uh, unions for years. The church made no stink about it. It was all the same legal thing. It was just the language. We got up in a tizzy when it was the language. But then we're also relying on the state. We're getting upset that the state is determining when marriage starts, but we as the church have surrendered our right to determine when it should end. What does Jesus say about divorce? And I'm not criticizing anyone who's divorced. There are reasons for divorce, and God is a redemptive God. But the hypocrisy in the church is that we have allowed and enabled the state to define for us when marriage ends, completely ignoring Jesus. But then we got upset when they also wanted to define when it starts and who it starts with. The gay community sees that and they're like, what the crap, man? That's hypocrisy. And when we have hypocrisy, we have no authority. And I'm not saying I agree with, it, with gay marriage. Clearly, I don't. I think it's broken. I think it's problematic. I think it's wrong. I also think that is pretty well. And I don't think America is going to save us. I think Jesus is. Does that all make sense? I, I know this is hard. <laughs> and trust, trust me, I know this no, is hard. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I love you. I'm so glad you. I'll give you a book if you'd like. But, I mean, as a parting gift. But, but I know, trust me when I say, I'm saying things that a lot of pastors don't say because they have to stick, stay here. 
I get to leave. I get to stir things up and leave. But I also say this in my own church that I pastor, so they're stuck with me. But they hired me knowing who I was, so it's their fault. But I also believe with all of my heart that we have to dig deeper and understand what it is we're fighting for. I am, I am a true believer in holy matrimony. I'm a true believer in the, in the sacrament of marriage. I believe marriage displays a spiritual reality about our relationship with God, with, the, with Jesus as the bridegroom and us as the bride, that is communicating something more powerful than here and now. I also believe that what my brother has is not the same thing. And because it's not the same thing, it can't be. It has no capacity to be the same thing. And therefore, since it's not the same thing, it doesn't threaten mine. Now, when they start trying to use that as a reason to take away my religious freedom, that's when you don't poke the bear and I'm going to go after it. But for me, there's this line. It's a thin line, but it's there. Where I have to, I've gone before the Lord for 15 years on this issue of the gay marriage issue, and I've fought to understand what am I fighting for, not just what am I fighting against. That leads me to be here. And I'm telling you this I'm not saying go and be like me, that's between you and the Lord. If, if the Lord has called you to fight against gay marriage, by all means. But just do it, understanding what that's going to do in your ability to relate to that community. For me, that's not a hill I want to die on. Because fighting whether or not my brother's marriage is legitimate is creating an obstacle for me that I don't want in my relationship with him. And it's only the Lord that will convict him that his marriage is wrong anyway. Not my words, not my wisdom. And so I would rather invest in the things that I think are what God calls me to, not try to push against something that he believes. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. But I will shoot anybody I ever find abusing a kid. Oh, heck yes, girl. Okay, that's, I will hold them at gunpoint with you. It's not. I don't care. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm all eye for an eye on that yeah, one. So. I'm, I'm reluctant on that issue. Yeah. Did you go to your brother's wedding? Yes, I did. Why when? Yes, I did. There's a whole chapter in the book. You should buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but I will, I will sum it up like this. I will give a spoiler on that. I did go to his wedding. It was a very long and difficult process for me. But what I get into in the book and all the details of that is something that we struggle with in the Christian church, which we have to fight to understand is the difference between acceptance and approval. There is a difference between acceptance and approval. Acceptance is one of the stages of grief, the final five stage, you know, fifth stage of grief where you just come to be like, it is what it is. Acceptance also says to another individual, I love you and I accept who you are, what you believe about yourself. I don't approve of it, I don't endorse it, I don't celebrate it, but I accept that God has given you a free will and your own right to decide who you are and I can't manipulate you into a different response. So when I came to an understanding that acceptance is different than approval, then I got to communicate clearly to my brother what I believed and because I clearly communicated to my brother what I believed on the issue, which wasn't a shock to anybody, then I could clearly communicate what my motivation would be for going or not going. And when I went to his wedding, my wife and I went to his wedding, after much wrestling with this issue, we made it clear that we were there not to celebrate, not to approve, but to demonstrate that no matter what he did, we loved him and we would always be there. And then when the minister, and I use that term lightly, was introducing the wedding or starting the ceremony. They said, now we know that some of you are here. 
and you don't agree with this union. And we were sitting over here. <laughs> Scowling look over at this section. We're like, yes, it's us. In the sackcloth and ashes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> and then she said, but you've chosen to be here because you love Matt and Will. And for that, we thank you. And here's one more thing on that. I have permission from my brother to talk about all of this. I actually asked his permission before, and I would not have shared any of this publicly, but because we have fought for relationship, because we have managed to disagree and yet love each other, it has proven such a good model for other families, and my brother, who has many in his community who have been kicked out and rejected by mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, has said to me, as much as I don't like where, what you stand for and what your ministry stands for most of the time, I know how hard you've worked to keep me in relationship with you, and if this can prove as a model for other families to learn how to do this well, that's a pretty darn great. So read all about it in the chapter called "Flight Folding Chairs" or something like that. I can't remember my own chapter. It's really good. <laughs> and so yeah, look it up. It's like chapter eight or something, or look at the the table of contents. City of White Point. No, that's my wife. James. No, that's me. Uh, the wedding. Okay, the wedding. That's so unoriginal. <laughs> <laughs> my editor changed it. <laughs> yeah, the wedding. But this was a good one. Coffee was room for cream and a dash of apologetics. That was the story I just told you, and there's more detail in there. Yeah. yeah. So I'm a funny author. You'll enjoy it. Go buy it. So I don't have to take them home on the plane. It's very heavy. <laughs> Any other questions? Come on, this is a chance. That'd be great. Yes, ma'am. What kind of situation did you guys have that led both of you to go in oh, that direction? Oh, how much time do you oh. have? To <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, baby Jesus, it was so bad. Um, well, I'll just I'll sum it up like this. Yeah. I'll sum it up like this. Um, first off, there is no one plus one equals homosexual. No. There's no one, one plus one equals homosexual. Right. Often what will happen is when someone like me shares my testimony, then people will be like, oh, that's why. And then they'll weaponize it from people. But really what I was talking to you about is relational wounds need relational healing. And we experience an incredible amount of relational wounds. Um, my mom and dad's marriage was a train wreck from the get-go. How many of you know two broken people do not make a whole marriage? <laughs> so their marriage dissolved when I was about in third grade, and my mom, you know, I'll share this. Is this recording still? Whose phone is this recording? I'm not sure. Power off. <laughs> I do this because I never want to dishonor my parents. And when it's published or out there, unfortunately, sometimes it can get there. So this is no longer powering. So let me, I'll share some details. My mom was...